Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? What's going on, Mark? Oh, man. Not too much. Feeling a lot better. Feeling like you sound my a lot old better. self again. Yeah. So, figure if nice, I can nice. survive exercise, I can, I'm good. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so. so, you were talking about some challenges with your reef tank, like, during COVID. Yeah. And, you know, I really loved our last session about kind of like some of the sacrifices that we need to make and some of the tough decisions we need to make to actually have a better reef tank because that was a really organic we did not like start that session talking about you know with the intention of discussing that topic it just kind of morphed into that yeah and i thought it was just there's a lot of um more subtle things about every hobby that it you know is not doesn't make for great conversation, <laughs> you know, but I think once you, you know, have that inception of the idea and you consider some of those things like, hey, maybe do less on your reef tank or have fewer corals or fewer fish or something like that, or get rid of corals that aren't exactly thriving. Um, I think there's a lot of topics like that that we can learn from. Yeah, it's like um, sometimes these self-help books or books about, you know, how to make your life better you read them and sometimes the chapters are really obvious but they at least hammer into it to make you think about it and uh i sometimes I, when i chat I, I you know on these i feel like that's what we're doing like at first it seems like we're stating the obvious but it's it's the putting the emphasis on it to to make it more of a conviction in a person right and yeah no absolutely so so were you able to rectify some of the things going on in your LPS lagoon tank? Uh, I'm working on it. It's weird. It's in the same place that uh, my old Red Sea tank was that I for a while struggled with dinos. And for some reason, this tank has become infested with dinos. And I've got the temp up to 83 right now. So I'll try to give that another week because um, I was upset I, before I left for Colorado. I set it up to 82 and nothing happened. And I was like, oh, my temperature, you know, approach ain't working this time. However, I wondered that I'm using a different temperature probe. Um, and you know how those CJ pumps have. Uh, a, oh, yeah, they got it built in. Yeah. And that the the pump temperature was reporting the tank temperature being much lower so i thought oh maybe i haven't hit that critical temperature threshold yet uh and and uh the temperature probe i was basing it on was running a little it was reading higher than it maybe was so i raised it another degree and i'll give that another week but um the other things i did is uh, i threw in a bunch of easy pellet eating type of fish to try to up the bio load because my nitrates and my phosphates are completely bottomed out and, and I am trying to dose those back up but I thought you know the hell with it add some fish um, and then uh, and then something that a lot of the dino guys are doing is trying to just add more diversity right so ooh man just I'm gonna unpack what you just said, Dino guys. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> People There's... who have so much experience with Dino flagellates that it's like their main challenge in life. There are support Ooh. groups on Facebook. <laughs> I joined one this week uh, just to see if anything's changed because it's been a while since I've been at war with dinos. But there is something interesting about this is no longer a succession type of algae that happens in the beginning. 
it's this weird persistent plague that shows up and just won't go away and um, I yeah I got some I started getting some dinoflagellates in my kind of low light LPS tank and it was you know bona fide dinos like nothing else growing among it yeah. on the wall and I did a video uh, of it and I was like alright I'm just going to do some iron and raise the temperature a little bit and I didn't really follow up with it just a few weeks later there was no dinos and I didn't I felt like I didn't want to put the video out because I thought it might be a little bit uh, I don't know preachy and not really giving any I mean this it worked for me there is not right. a trace of dinoflagellates in the tank now but I just somehow transcribing that onto somebody else's aquarium and showing it as an example something about it just didn't feel totally right you know so that is actually a rare video that I aborted we did the video, filmed it over a few days. There was just something about it. I just don't want to get up there and be like, hey, look at me. I just dust a little bit of iron and raise the temperature a little bit, and boom, they're gone. And um, Yeah, and if I think, I think that was a smart move because I've heard some of the other experts in the hobby be like, I don't get what the big deal with dinos is. Just have a blackout for a few days, and it goes away. You know, And I'm like, don't you think these people have tried everything? I mean, like when you're, when you're fighting them for six months, you have tried the kitchen sink, right? So, uh, yeah. No, I, I had the same with the temperature thing. Like, hey, guys, this worked for me. But but I did that. Yeah. That tank didn't have a heater. It was the coldest tank in the whole studio because, I, you know, naturally most LPS corals come from a little bit deeper water. It's going to be a little colder. So that's how I kept it. So I actually plugged it in and just raised it to, like, 78, added some iron. Didn't really think about it, you know, and removed the 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 diatom the <laughs> diatoms is what I'm used to talking about right dinoflagellates maybe once or twice and then I forgot about it and looked at the tank and like dude there's you can't even find a, a, a speck of it but there's something about it that video that I was like mm, I don't know if this is the right message to put out there because it does seem like God we never even talked about dinoflagellates right other than in the in the context of symbiodinium and yeah. zooxanthellae like that's dinoflagellates right we need them to for our corals to grow and yeah i don't think any of the, the reef books even talk about it no i mean um and it seems like the advice i mean there's typically a couple of different strains that people struggle with one of them tends to respond really well to uv and if you got that one cool just you know pony up the cash for a uv sterilizer and you're good and then the other kind it seems like the the most people that beat them, they just end up having to increase the microbial diversity, essentially add more competitors, right? So it's like copepods and, and a lot of them like report success dosing phyto, which I don't know if the phyto itself is stimulating a more diverse microbiome or if you're essentially fertilizing the tank because of remnant iron and other, you know, everything that's in the phytoplankton solution. Yeah. Now. So this kind of goes back to that session that we had about the scientific things that you wish or the aquaristic problems that you think we, we could benefit from someone taking a more scientific approach to examining. Yeah. You know, and so this is mm -hmm. one of those, like, I don't want to be patronizing, but like, Oh, Hey, just raise your temperature and dose some iron. It's worked for me a couple times, but I don't know. I've just heard the pushback from so many people and, um, kind of along those lines um i think it was right after you visited i added a little bit of ozone to the 400 that wouldn't clear up from a bacterial bloom 
And just seeing the benefits from that, I realized that I actually had two ozonizers. So I put, so I took the 200 milligram per hour off the 400 and put the 50 milligram on there. And I took the 200 milligram and put it on the main system. I'll tell you what, man, like corals have never looked better. Probably the water's clearer and it's just knocked back that biology a little bit. I just see less of that microbial soup that you talk about. And I think I, I, I you know, name checked you in uh, the video of the, the reef wall. And uh, I just I have huge UVs. I have huge UVs and I just feel like mm, maybe a more chemical approach is more what I'm looking for to raise my ORP and to introduce a little bit of sterilization in only one of my protein skimmers um, rather than adding a 100 watt UV yeah. that is going to heat the tank and it's going to require pump and it's two things to plug in and if you only have one tank yeah sure by all means go ahead but I got a few hundred things plugged in here one of these days let me go go around and just count how many outlets how many things are just plugged in but for, I think um, I think there's a lot more conversation to be had about the ozone i've been learning a lot more about what is reduction specifically and what is oxidation specifically and i think there's a lot of gains to be had there yeah i ran on uh back in when red sea used to make a unit i ran a red sea ozonizer on a 180 for a year the and red sea aquazone the aquazone yeah and it did you have the one with the built-in orp probe no and i didn't even measure orp i just <laughs> i just ran it uh into a skimmer and uh, it worked. I mean, I, I had nothing bad to say about it. I tried to revisit ozone when I was battling dinos the first time, but I ordered a UV bulb-based ozonizer from, mm -hmm. I think, Ultra Reef or Ultra something. And it was their nano model, but that thing nuked my basement. Like I turned it on, went to bed, and I woke up the next morning and came down here and I was like, oh God, like my lungs are burning. Um, it was a little, even though they called it a nano, I think it was just too intense. So uh, I, at that point I didn't revisit it because I was just like, yeah, this is not good for my health. But like a small unit, um, and who is it? I think like Oh Too Many Fish. I remember reading a lot of his posts on the forums. Dave Botwin. Botwin, yeah. I talked to him periodically, yeah. That dude would just like bubble ozone with an airstone in a tank, you know, and uh, in his fish-only system. And so um, I, I do feel like some of the concerns around ozone are probably a bit overblown, you know, like the whole um, boric acid or boron, whatever. Yeah, uh, boric what is it, borate? Whatever the... Right when I installed the ozonizers, I, I went and did a bunch of, let's just call it skimming, right? Because I wasn't doing research. It's just skimming on the effects of ozone because I'm you know, in here and sometimes we have to close it up because it's either too cold or too hot. And they were just talking about, you know, some basic respiratory, respiratory uh, you know, issues and maybe light headaches. But man, when I worked in the reef shops, in the late 90s, we would push so much ozone through the tiniest, shittiest, poorest excuses for a protein skimmer. You, know, you remember the cylinders that were like built into sumps and they had like a like a Rio 400 or 600 yeah. little pseudo noodle wheel thing? And it would always smell like ozone over there. And we'd ran the ozone on several systems around the store. And no one ever batted an eye about any potential health effects. For sure, if you really, really smell it and you can't get away from it, um, that's not a good condition like what you're talking about. Um, but uh, I think there's more research to be done, but I don't think it is, it's as 
dangerous as you know some people are are, are gun shy about it's so unstable that it doesn't have a long existence in your air right it's going to find something to react with and mm -hmm. it's going to break down um, yeah. so uh, you know I, I remember somebody recommending like oh just turn it off maybe a few hours before you wake up and come down mm -hmm. into that space and you probably won't smell anything anymore because it's all broken down and I thought yeah that maybe that's an idea but but yeah I, I'm going the opposite I'm trying to add more diversity to try to outcompete this stuff just because I I don't know what else to do with it it's so frustrating I hate that stuff and it makes your <laughs> tank smell like uh, it, it makes it like low tide yeah oh it's brutal yeah because I work down here, you know, like I got it, my day job and then the tanks mm -hmm. just over there. And it's like, oh, man, I don't want to smell that the whole day while I'm working. So, um, But we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, I, 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 we're such complimentary reefers because you have your controller for a bunch of stuff. And I try to, you know, just use controllable devices. And my entire reefing philosophy is aiming for less biology and less ecology and less factors and that's what i'm trying to do with the ozone and i got the 400 gallon test tube with three acros in it and you know trying to just scrape down everything and kill sponges god if you guys just knew how much i have to deal with sponges it's i i think sponges are so cool and they're so like fascinating pseudo animals. I mean, they're animalia, but they're not really a, an organism, right? It's a colony of cells. I have so many, so many different types. I'm like, I wish I had a fish or some creature that was specifically, uh, uh, you know, sponge eating. Thanks guy. Amazon dude just walked in the studio and put my stuff down over here nice <laughs> yeah i think um, if i went with your methodology i it's i i do feel like sometimes you got to match the methodology to the personality uh i would run in like like i've noticed on this tank for example and and that's my canary in the coal mine is if i don't see turf algaes growing where the tangs can't reach it Mm. You know, yeah, like right at the overflow teeth or yeah. your nozzle outlet. That's when I know like dinos ain't, are not going to be able to survive, right? But in this tank, the overflow teeth and the return nozzles are spotless. I mean, they're freaking spotless, except for some coralline algae, which to me is the red flag, right? Like there is no complex algaes there to compete with these dinos. So, uh, which. I don't know. So, so yeah, like I look at your very sterile tanks and I'm like, if I did that, it'd be like covered in brown goo, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, uh, just my you know, look. Um, if you set up a tank with hypothetical test tube corals, I don't think you'd ever battle dinos or Valonia or Aptasia or Mahanos or just even just random coral illnesses that we can't put our finger on. And uh, I wouldn't have to run UV. I wouldn't have to run ozone, right? And so for me, you know, I have I got corals from literally every place that corals come from, from so many different reefers. And it feels like the tanks that are newer and that have corals from fewer of my tanks, there's just no more, there's no mystery ailments with certain corals. You know, I have a hospital tank for corals because every now and then a Ghani, a Duncan, an LPS coral, um, and certain acros, 
certain tenuous millipora just it, i feel like in the future someone's going to look at all the acros and actually split them up like in, in more maybe in a subgeneric level there is so much diversity there and morphologically like okay sure they all have the axial tip but the behavior like even from a millipore to a spathulata i absolutely rock it with a spathulata no problems. That one little colony that you were looking at oh, that grew yeah. from just a tiny little... You, if you could see that thing since I've been running ozone for a week, oh, maybe it's been two weeks now. It just... It's brilliant. Last night, I turned off the lights on the coral flat with all the acros, and I was just observing the corals. And it wasn't, it wasn't just about the color. It was just the vibrance and the polyp extension and the tissue, like the tissueiness of each of these SPS corals, I was just like floored. You know, I got this one coral, you know, um, I don't know if you recall the one that I call like the tabling stag or the semi stag that's in the, one of the corners and it's really big. It's just a interesting shade of kind of um, transparent lime green, right? Cause it's not solid green. And I was just looking at it and it doesn't have any crazy colors to be really obviously top of the page on um, Instagram. But I was just looking at it like, man, this thing is just so awesome and just looking so great. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. I don't know where I was going with that. But yeah, corals are so different. Um, from, from even within the acros. So it's an interesting yeah. point, you know, because it's it's a pretty broad genus and so many different morphologies within that genus. And then, like you said, I mean, even two corals that sort of resemble each other uh, physically, apparently physiology, physiologically, is that the word mm -hmm. I'm for? Differ greatly, it. right? Um, so yeah, that's I, it's funny you bring that up. I've never thought about that. But yeah, like one day somebody's going to go in there, maybe with DNA sequencing or something, and be like, wait a minute, guys. You know, because you always also wonder, like, convergent evolution, right? Where you've got geckos in Australia and in the Americas that have no common ancestor, but just mm -hmm. evolution pushed them to turn into the same thing. Um, you have to kind of wonder if that's true for corals too, right? I mean, that a branching, small polyp type of species of, is fulfills that niche really well so who knows if you've got two types of acropora that have no ancestors but they just convergently evolved to sort of look similar you know so anyway that's i mean this you could make the same case for tagastes red bugs you can make the same case for acroating flatworms in a tank where you know filled with happy thriving corals in great conditions there's there's it they the acroating flatworms will be much more attracted to millipores. Yeah. Not at first. Not at first with all the polyp tentacles out, right? They, they can't, the, the flatworms can't rest on them. But once they get in there, then they really take off. Mean, so I have a little bit of acroating flatworms that in my Amazon order. I got a, a pet treatment that I'm going to start trying out for uh, acroating flatworms that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Is it uh, that and, fenbendazole or whatever? Fenbendazole. It's come up yeah. more than once over the years. And um, I did some actual research on there, reading peer-reviewed literature, and it's, you know, seems to be very specific. And, you know, I think if Dustin Dorton was still really manning the, the helm of the acro production at uh, ORA, you know, someone like him uh, would have come up with a treatment for acroating flatworms. I am, I'm the most cavalier at treating the whole tank. I got no problems with it because I understand a little bit more about how these different um, 
chemicals and compounds work, right? And they're really, really targeted. So um, thankfully, I have a quarantine tank. But what I was going to say is that, you know, you know that if you have a tortuosa or an ostera of any variety, those corals just grow like freaking, they just grow. Yeah. Even in bad conditions, they will just grow slower. And there, there's just something about them that's really different from, let's say, Acropora gemifera. It, Jamifera doesn't really occur in the reef aquarium hobby because it is so picky. You go out of the wild, it is incredibly common, mm -hmm. like incredibly common. But, you know, in this one tank that I know I have acarine flatworms, there's only a couple smaller, you know, smoother, not smooth skin, but smoother colonies that are really affected. Meanwhile, I don't even bother looking at my red dragon. That thing's growing so fast. I wish it did have acarine <laughs> flatworms to slow it down a little bit, right? Um, so, so yeah, that, that's where I'm at. God, I wish you could have seen the acros last night. It was just pamping. I did so much cleanup after you visited. I wish you could see the tanks now. Well, that's what happened to me. You came for the Aquatic Expo, and uh, my wife convinced me not to clean the back glass because she's like, I like the coralline. I'm like, all right. And then I finally got fed up and did it. I was like, why didn't I do this before Jake visited? Because you could actually see the dimensionality of the aquascape now right it didn't blend mm -hmm. into the background i was like pissed at myself and then the the sand bed or the gravel in the bigger tanks just magically went white again like whatever that turf that showed up for a bit went away and i'm like okay thanks guys now that everybody's <laughs> left the building now you look nice yeah so. no that's how it goes man i don't know how many times almost every time i visit a store or somebody's tank they're always like oh you should have been here last week we had so many corals or you should have been here you know a couple of days ago everything was pimping a little bit more but i'm hitting this problem but um, i got a question for you is the mm -hmm. uh the goni that's just kind of hanging in there in your starkey damsel tank is that an amaze balls yeah oh yeah okay uh -huh. i got the yeah, same problem about that all of a sudden gosh Freaking Beelzebub. I have so many different gonies, and they're all like, do, 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 I'm good, I'm good. And then the Amaze Balls is like all closed up, pissed off. I'm like, what? Everybody's happy except you. Like, what is your problem? Dude, that, ex that exact thing happened to my Amaze what? Balls. <laughs> literally <laughs> surrounded by pure ghanis they weren't touching it even though they can touch and just one day it shut down you know to its credit my nutrients were probably close to zero because that's before i was really on the ball with nitrate testing because hannah came out with the you know the high range nitrate checker um but I still have my piece. <laughs> that thing was in hospice for a long, I mean, almost a year before it's really started putting polyps out. God, if I ever, if I ever grow that thing for real. <laughs> if it comes back, yeah, it's like a phoenix. I'm going to move mine to my bigger tank and just see if a change in scenery, a change in chemistry, whatever, you know, just see what happens. Dude, this really highlights what we were talking about last time. It, and... For the females listening, I, I apologize, but for the guys will understand when you're chasing a love interest and it just doesn't love you back, mm -hmm. you're just stringing you along in some way or another and you, you know, find an, another partner or coral that is going to be happy in your tank, dude, I'll take a normal, happy, huge stokes eye over a tiny pissed off maze balls every day, every day of the week. <laughs> It's just funny how the most expensive one is the one that's like, no, screw you. You know, like all the other ones are fine. And, and some of the other ones are beautiful. 
Um, so it's not really a, like a, a color thing or anything. It's just you. It's like, oh, that one costs you the most. Okay, that one's gonna be pissy as hell. It's like, come mm-hmm. on, man. Well, so the inverse is rarely true. Yeah. This is why I rave about the hoax I collected from Australia that I call the Hardline Hokey. It it seems like it would have a a permit to be pissy. Right. It, it deserves like it, right? It, it deserves to be a high maintenance coral the way it looks. Right, right, but it's turned out the opposite. I've shared so much of that coral. I just sent some out yesterday to Chris Meckley. And in every tank I have it in, it's just blue or bluer and grows faster, faster. You know, you were with me when we planted it in the 400 mm-hmm. gallon along with the rainbow tip uh, thin stack. It looks amazing. Looks amazing. The only thing I could say is um, I may be overlighting it with white, um, not, not the blue hooks on my, but the rainbow tip stag, and it's like really just light yellow overall with just pink tips. But just the last couple of days, I've been looking at the tips. I'm like, they're really growing, <laughs> really growing. That's because I only set up like a 12 hour, 100% full blast spectrum that simply turns off. Cause when I set up the tank, I'm just like, oh, here you go. Here's a schedule. Here's yeah. enough light for you guys. But now I need to tweak it a little bit more to have a longer tail um, at the you know dawn and dusk cycle and give it a little bit more blue. I think it's gonna make it a little bit more, more colorful. But yeah, the hoaxamai is the, the hardline hokey is the opposite. And I, you know, I know a lot of people who worked with hoaxamai in the 2010s and dude, it was always a tough one. Yeah. The always one tough. I got from Atlantis Aquarium or whatever, <coughs> Atlantis Marine out in Cali, that thing was real finicky and it looked uh-huh. just, um, it had the similar type of growth. And then I got one from you, I want to say back in 2015 and that one, it was a bit hardier for me but yeah anyway yeah i have another i have two other hoax of my strains i think the one is the really old legacy blue matrix Mm -hmm. super fuzzy but does not grow like the hardline hokey and then a more indo one that's definitely teal with bluer tips you saw it you know in my middle coral flat Mm -hmm. um it's nice but it's nothing like the hardline hokey i mean that thing looks like blue led color not royal blue but like 470 nanometer blue from top to bottom it just goes from blue to bluer so that's why i rave about that coral because it seems like it would be a lot more you know demanding dude that thing never skips a beat never skips a beat yeah that's that's nice that there's a there are some corals like that you know like red gonies are obviously very colorful they tend to be real hardy um glitter bombs i've heard are terrible glitter bomb gonies I've, i haven't mm-hmm. even tried one of those but everything i read says that those are real finicky it's just frustrating it's it's interesting again similar to what you were saying about acros and you know here you have these goniopras that clearly are all look to be related but yet physiologically man that's a long word um they all just behave differently you know they all mm-hmm. have different quirks and uh it's just interesting yeah now the 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 continental divide between the behavior of a spathulata from a millipora just blows my mind. Just blows my mind. But I have more millies now. Now that I'm keeping my nutrients up, I'm seeing a lot more uh, vitality and health and color and growth from my millies. But for some reason, I don't know, maybe spathulata is a little bit more of an outer reef coral. And I know from my experience, personally, like seeing a ton of millies, they're, they're like inshore. 
you know, they're usually a lot more closer ashore, pretty shallow water, uh, oftentimes turbid. Yeah. So that yeah, maybe they just need that much more food. So they might be similar, but Millipores just went a certain direction. Um, speaking of which, you know one thing I'm missing for my coral collection? Hmm. Millipora. Millipora fire coral. Oh no, don't do it. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, but there's dude, there's like some really cool one. Um they're Millipora complanata grows into like big fat blades not alcicornis like screw that you, yeah. you, know, you can keep it unless you grow it on an old uh sea fan skeleton then it looks really really cool but i, I remember peter wilkins tank the that's whole what i was gonna back, bring up yeah the whole back was just this light golden brown color can you imagine doing maintenance on that tank oh my god no no <laughs> and if you had a ton in the tank man that thing would probably sting you without touching it. Yeah. it just all those nematocysts would just be in the water. But yeah, it's it's actually something I'm missing. Um, there's another one, Millipora squarosa, kind of grows into like these square tubes. It's really rare. You know what? It's weird. In the Caribbean, Millipora can be really dominant. But there's a ton of not a ton, but maybe like a dozen or so species in the Pacific, and they're like rare and endangered. <laughs> It's crazy. It's really, really strange that in, in one ocean it's weedy and in the other ocean it's very rare. Yeah. Maybe because they're currently getting outcompeted by the you know, corals that are still out there. Yeah, maybe in the Caribbean they took a hold just because a lot of the other dominant stony corals are in decline, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, good luck with that. I hope it doesn't spread like wildfire on you. Well, no, I don't have any. Yeah. But you know what I do have? What? I got a zebra tang. Nice. Where'd you get that? Mauritius. Nice. Yeah. Got it from Mauritius. Sent to me by my sister, Monika Gorobi, my sister at heart. Um, sent to me by uh, Tank Stop. So thanks to those guys. And man, he is a perfect specimen. He just hit the ground, hit the water, 10 minutes in, you know, throw some flake in there. He's going crazy. It's been, I think I've had him a week or so. And now he's just a piggy pig pig. He's already put on a little bit of weight, but he's got crazy nice facial markings. And I just like, I want more, I want more but I know they're not, we don't, we don't even know enough to know if they're like a schooling fish. The only you one know? I've ever seen scuba diving was in um, Mozambique and it was solitary, which I thought was interesting, but huh. it could have just been a stray. I didn't know you saw one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, they're, they're nothing like convicts. Yeah. They don't school like they congregate a little bit. I saw them in the wild in southern Mauritius. Apparently, they also occur in Mayotte, Comoros, and Reunion. Maybe maybe southern Madagascar. So that's cool that you saw it in Mozambique. Was that in northern southern northern Mozambique? Southern, right oh, across really? the border from South Africa. I only saw one, and I followed that thing around for like fifteen minutes, burning up my How oxygen. Have you never told me this story? I did. I thought I did, but yeah, it's in that uh, crappy video I made back in the day of of the thing. Um, but yeah, I remember, I mean, I, I went all the way down to South Durban thinking I'm going to go see some King Eye Angels, didn't see squat, which frustrated me. But then um, the people I dove with were just, I mean, South Africans are like the nicest people, right? And they were like, hey, grab a burger with us. Hey, why don't you go camp with us and scuba dive? And I'm like, wait, camping and scuba diving combined? I'm like, I mean, yeah, sign me up. I would love that. Yeah. Um, and then <clears throat> I felt like that single gem tang, and this was before they became more prevalent in the trade, because uh, this was way back, you know, I think uh, 08, maybe. 
do in here. Actually, one of these copies of Giant Clams is signed by Klaus Janssen. Oh, nice. The, the founder of Royal Exclusive. He was at my house for Reefstock 20, no, sorry, Magna 2014. And he shows so many different, like, old school German exhibits from late 80s, early 90s. And every single one of them had a gem tang. And I'm like, where the hell are these coming from? And I don't know that they had fish from Mauritius back then. Yeah. But they were clearly had a much, direct, much more direct line to the Western Indian Ocean. But yeah, I know what you mean. There was a time where like this giant clam book had more pictures of giant clams than even a book about fish identification. Yeah. Yeah, it was a, I thought it was like my concession for not seeing the king eye angel. I was like, "Oh, I got to see something rare, you know." Um, but so I know we've mentioned this before because I went to South Africa and I specifically tasked my dive guide with finding me some and we came up with the hand signals of tiger angel i remember getting to the habitat and be like mm, this doesn't feel right no i don't think so and i think it's about 20 minutes into the dive i heard a clink 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 you know he had a snapper on his tank and i went and followed him and he found one dang and then uh, maybe five or ten minutes later found another one but on my second dive the f as soon as like i plunged into the water and the bubbles cleared up um the only thing i saw were gem tanks big enough to eat that was the dominant fish where I was in KwaZulu Natal. So you saw the temperature. In, wow, in South the Africa, the temperature was sixty-eight degrees. Where we were, we were wearing like seven or eight mil uh, wetsuits. Were you on the south, like Aliwal Shoal, or were you up north in Sudwana? I'm, I'm sure our listeners are like, "What?" But <laughs> like, yeah, no, I know those names, but I'm kind of. I'm foggy on yeah, exactly no where well. I think it was Ali Wall. Okay, yeah, that place was show. chilly cold. It's like subtropical. It, uh, the only coral I saw was Plesiastria. Yeah. And it was bright white, but not bleached. It, it was a weird, like, pearly white. It reminded me of, like, uh, scuba diving. A good analogy in Florida would be, like, West Palm Beach area, like, where you're getting a bit too far north, but there's still, like, straggler corals, you know? Um mm -hmm. That's what it reminded me of. It was like, mm, okay, we're getting a little chilly here. But uh, but that dive was also crazy to me because it felt like you had to be a Navy SEAL to dive it. Like, you know, you're in an inflatable boat with a motor on the back. And then they're like, you know, the cattle boats in, in most tropical areas, you know, you just, they they usually latch onto a mooring ball and then you just follow the rope down at your leisure and, you know, depressurize your ears. You know, just take your time getting to the bottom. We'll see you at the bottom. And then the South Africans are like, no, 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 no. You go like this and you swim straight down. Swim down. Because otherwise we're going to lose you in the current. And I'm like, wait, I can't just slowly descend. I actually have to swim to the bottom. Like, you know, which is really, I don't know, for anybody that dives, probably can relate. It's hard to equalize your ears when you're rapidly <laughs> descending. That dive was nuts, man. I was like, geez, these guys are hardcore. Props to uh, South Africans and their diving, man. Phew. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, that was a cool trip. It was cool to see that kind of stuff in the wild. Uh, cool. Well, um, you ready to digest our main topic of, of reef therapy? Yeah, today? this is actually a good segue because um, if you think about what the subject is, it, it's, it's perfect. <laughs> it's a perfect example. Do you want to tell them what our subject is? So we were talking about, you know, hobbies that are complementary to reef keeping, you know things that um, either you develop skills in that hobby that you can translate or carry over or ways that it helps enhance your appreciation of the hobby. 
Um, so that, that's what we mean by complementary. And of course, scuba diving is like the fundamental, perfect example of that, right? Uh, for obvious reasons. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I think there's there's definitely a lot of hobbies and pastimes that can really enrich and inform your reef aquarium hobby experience. And you, you we get this all the time where, um, you know, I'll write an article, you know, back in the day about LEDs and, the, you know, like an electrical engineer would, would hit me up and give me a little bit of, um, you know, pro tips or um, something about, you know, corals coming in from a certain area and a scuba diver would be like, oh, hey, oh, I've, I've seen this one. Or, you know, I don't know the name, but I've, I recognize a picture. Um, but yeah, I think there's a ton of hobbies that if you're, you know, looking to branch out from the reef aquarium hobby can just really help give you a, a broader uh, understanding of things that are going on. Yeah, very much so. Um, I think... Uh it, I think a lot of our discussions sometimes that become topics um, have their origins outside of the hobby, maybe in other areas that we have interest in, but yet our brain starts to merge that idea with the hobby, and that's sort of where we get some of these creative topics from. So it's a good example of just how it, it can help you uh, enhance your knowledge in a specific area it can help you appreciate something more or it can help you put another lens on something right you know before i went really scuba diving in the pacific mostly the pacific or just in general you know you don't really have an awareness of how many habitats are you know we we've we've talked about this before that that image that we have of the postcard from the maldives right you know palm trees white sandy beaches perfect reef crystal clear water powder blue tanks yeah right nothing but acros and then when you go diving in indonesia and you find find out or discover where you know deep water acros are found or australamuses or some of the lps or like trackies or ghanis it couldn't even be any further from that most of indonesia where you go diving is going to be closer to shore heavily influenced by the land right so it's not unless you're like offshore great barrier reef or the maldives or the red sea that you get that postcard view but those are that's kind of like it's probably the dominant habitat for corals in the wild but it is the minority habitat of where corals come from right because if you're a coral collector why are you going to boat out 20 30 miles from shore when you can just wade out into the water and grab some stuff off the pier now that's absolutely exaggerated but when you really form an understanding of oh there's there's clear water there's turbid water there's you know now there's wave there's surge and then there's you know like uh, tidal flow those are two very different things and corals are built for different habitats so for sure like scuba diving on pacific reefs because unfortunately caribbean reefs just they don't reflect where our corals come from we don't really keep caribbean corals um that is one of the most informative you know seeing the the environmental gradient from you know the shore to offshore from the shallows to the depth it's incredible like you it, i i had this again i had that postcard in my head until i dove a bunch of different places i'm like man 
now when I go diving, I I want to go to where the water is just murky enough that you can see the crocodiles, right? I'll stay away from there, but dude, there's got to be some undiscovered corals. They're living in like crocodile infested waters, yeah, right? But I always say bad diving makes for really interesting corals. Yeah, and it, it changes what I think excites you, right? Instead of the, the tanks you see on social media fueling what excites you. I think if you go scuba diving, um, your whole, uh, oh, you know what, you know, gets me going and I think is really cool changes. Um, yeah. I'm like you yeah. in that regard. Like, <clears throat> like my fantasy is snorkeling among mangrove roots, right? And seeing softies mixed in with some turtle grass, mixed in with some carpet anemones, you know, and that to me, like, like, uh, like that kind of lagoon mangrove, like I still have yet to visit a place like that, but I've visited similar places like that and I've seen it in photographs and I think, you know, SPS are cool and oh wow, they're so, you know, challenging and they come in so many colors and then you go, you know, scuba dive and I don't know, you'll come back in my, well, everybody's different. I came back with a greater appreciation of different types of corals and different types of yeah. environments. Um, so, you know, I don't want to dwell too much on scuba diving because it's not accessible for most folks, but I would say it's probably the next best thing that's instructive for reef aquarium keeping is other forms of aquatic keeping. Yeah. You know, freshwater and ponds. I watch, there's this one place called, there's one channel called The Koi Talk. Mm. And dude, I could care less what they're talking about. I just enjoy and appreciate the, the sophistication of the discourse. You know, when you're dealing with, with koi part in particular and a cheap one in a large pond is worth thousands of dollars. You know, even if you bought it for a little, a lot less than that and then you grew it out, you know, it's got a lot of value tied to it. They don't make up names. You know, they don't come up with cockamamie ideas. There are koi vets, you know, there's lots of koi vets out there that will treat the fish and they, you know, uh, automatic filter rolls. That is an offshoot of pond keeping. This is where I first got the uh, inception by going to Interzoo and seeing these giant drum filters and then later on very large volume automatic filter rolls. And that's where I'm like, oh, my God, this is absolutely the future for a hobby in 2010. And now I've got like five or six, six different ones around the studio. I feel, I feel like we're in the future right now. Um, but yeah, man, those pond guys, they don't, they don't mince words. And you want to know about like high flow, high performance, very reliable pond pumps, uh, you know, or water pumps. You got to look to the pond guys. They, they, there's a wealth of knowledge there if you really want to get into the reeds of reef aquarium keeping. But that's where the discoveries are, right? Because they're really focused on health of the fish and... Man, you think our you know bio bio media is like fun? You should take a look at the like the I forget what they call them like like a rain system or something where they just shower stuff like a mega wet dry and it's like really really huge and um, you know one one technology that hasn't made its way over is drum filters and so instead of having a filter roll that you spool off, it's just like an automatic rotating drum and catches the waste and sprays that off. So maybe there's an application in the reef aquarium hobby in the future but i don't know that anyone's working on it but um yeah it's it's very informative yeah and i mean i 
I like watching videos of them building the ponds because it's not so much aquascaping as it is landscaping, but man, some of the people, the visions that they have of their backyards from where it starts and where it ends is mind blowing, you know, and it, it makes mm-hmm. me go, okay, I've got a four by two glass box and some rocks and I'm struggling to like aquascape it the way I want. You know, imagine moving giant boulders and building a waterfall and letting, you know, analyzing Using an excavator yeah. to aquascape yeah. or, or to landscape your pond. Yeah. Yeah. Along those same lines, man, I always thought that monster fish would be mostly the purview of like public aquariums and a few eccentric, very rich folks. But they were able to, you know, monster fish enthusiasts. So I'm talking about arowanas, peacock basses, stingrays, um, garamis. Just they call them giant garamis, but to me, they're just normal garamis, right? Um, and pakus and, and big catfish. Those guys, you know, they gleaned a lot of stuff from the pond people and they figured out how to set up huge systems of water using, you know, kind of like temporary ponds and then just building these showcase things inside of their homes. Yeah. You know, I think uh, Joey of uh, DIY Fishkeeper, he installed a 2,000-gallon pond, which is like barely registers on the scale, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen, uh, I I think it was, I want to say maybe in the UK, the guy excavated the earth next to his basement and built like a glass panel wall. And he's got red tail cats and he's got... And so it's just a, uh, not glass, probably acrylic, but whatever. He's got a glass wall, and on one side is a couch and a living space, and the other side is this massive tank. <laughs> um, concrete walls on the other three sides, right? And I'm thinking, that's hardcore. Like you, I think that's the tank that was just featured by Mixed Fish UK. Okay. That guy's been putting out a video every two days. Yeah. And he's just spending all summer long just traveling all over England, checking out all this crazy stuff. And it's like, you don't have to be fully into it to just entertain some of the ideas that they're putting forth, you know, like kind of fluidized media that's not the same fluidized media reactor that we have now, but it's starting to be more included in certain things. Like I just saw a video by Tenji where they were showing off a sump for a customer. They didn't show off the tank. I assume it was a reef tank because there was a trident and stuff on there, but there was a, you know, fluidized media bed inside that keeps everything in suspension. And I didn't understand that that stuff actually breaks down some of the mechanical waste as well as being a place for biomedia. But when it's bouncing around, and this would apply less to our reef tanks where we're just rising that, writing that razor thin margin of nutrients versus um, uh, like a very heavily loaded fish aquarium, right? So I'm just, man, I love just, just even entertaining ideas that could apply to fresh and saltwater keeping. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't have one currently, but I always like having a freshwater system to complement my saltwater system too, right? It's just, it, it it's like speaking two languages, right? Being bilingual is beneficial for your brain, right? It's like speaking French and English because there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not like like speaking Arab and Chinese, no. right? It's a, it's a very similar language and it's just, you know, nice to see. It's you know what's freaking unfair? Hmm. It's unfair seeing 
how many tanks the freshwater people can get away with running one large high pressure air pump yeah i love watching fish room <laughs> tours on youtube where these guys have dude their whole basement both. littered with 20 gallon longs and 30 gallon longs and they just have a bunch of sponge filters everywhere with one giant air pump running the whole show i'm like man that's and the, and and the reason they have so many tanks is because of another reason i'm jealous of the freshwater hobby is a massive diversity of fish massive compared to saltwater that are much easier to breed right yeah. they can achieve that pinnacle of aquarium keeping much more readily than we can yeah you know we get to the spawning part and it's like oh now you're just getting started for yeah. everything but like bang guys <laughs> is there anything yeah. other saltwater fish that's easier to breed something you know yeah that's that's one thing that i'm a little bit jealous of um, if saltwater fish were breeding wasn't just such a commitment, it'd be so much fun to breed giant schools of zebra tangs or blue tangs or just whatever your favorite angelfish is, you know. Um, but yeah, it's, you, there's no reason you couldn't do that for saltwater as long as you could live with the salt creep. Oh, There'd know. be so much salt mist everywhere. That room would be, have to be really dedicated. But in some ways, it really does reflect... Um, Dick Perrin's um, Tropicorium, yeah. right? He ran a ton of huge tanks with just airlift. This is before propeller pumps were available, so he used a ton of airlift. So there is a ghetto fabulous way to set up a ton of tanks, but you know, people are really locked into having a controller for their 10-gallon aquarium. <laughs> yeah, and it's also, uh, you know, this obsession with the quality of the source water, uh, you have to make salt water, right? Like some of these fish rooms, they also have water changes automated, right? So they just have their tap yeah. water running through some carbon and then they just open up a valve and they have a, a higher overflow in their systems. They don't even drain the water. Yeah. They just turn a spigot on or they have right. it. Like I saw this one fish room where a guy was just like so freaking proud of repurposing like an irrigation controller yeah. to do these automatic water changes to different tanks around his place and he had you know strung up like it was so much piping everywhere and it was it was pretty well organized but i'm like goodness i'm jealous <laughs> there was a guy here in atlanta that i i picked up a tank from 20 years ago and he was a freshwater guy at the time. And But what was interesting is you go into his house and he had, you know, multiple beautiful planted tanks, a discus tank. And they were all throughout his house. So they don't didn't seem connected at all, right? Like, oh, there's one in this room, there's one in that room. But his basement was unfinished. And he bought Reef Ready tanks. So Reef Ready 180, Reef Ready 125, 75. And uh, the what we would hook up the return pump, that was all tapped into PVC under underneath the floor in the basement that was tapped into his tap water with a carbon filter. And then what we would use as the drains to our sump, that drained into his sewer. That was all connected. It's not, even, not fair. So he just went down to the basement and just opened up a valve and did a water change on every tank in his house, you know, and then just turned it off, you know, and like it just the excess water overflowed. And I was like, yep. man, and I've always, I always remember reading an article about a guy, it was an article about growth inhibiting hormones, and they were doing these experiments with wild swordtails where they were feeding the crap out of them, 
with continuous water changes so that the growth inhibiting hormones didn't build up. And they were talking about how they grew out these gigantic sore tails. And so as the kid in me always wanted to just have like some freshwater tanks with a constant you know, automatic water exchange drip and then just feed the crap out of them because you know the nutrients are never going to build up and just see what happens, you know, just see how big all your fish and how fat they are. And Anyway. So I think, uh, you know, scuba diving, ponds, and freshwater are some kind of obvious examples of, like, great partner hobbies to the reef aquarium um, hobby. Yeah, those are easy um, shoe-ins, right? Yeah, yeah, that's some low-hanging fruit. Um, what do you think, photography is next? Yeah, I think photography is a really good one. Um, I think it's less so now that we have such amazing cameras on our phone, but there was a time where people with SLR cameras were really having a field day with their aquariums being the subject. And, I mean, it used to be you went on the forums and saw so much great macro photography and fish shots. And I, st I still think that's true even with you know these great cameras that everybody has in their pockets now um but you could certainly still take it up to a next level as a hobby right and and when you're getting into like a mirrorless setup or something that has better shutter speeds so you can catch that really fast moving royal grama that's darting in and out of the rocks right dude there is nothing like getting a what i call the money shot just like a shot where you're like oh i'll, I'll take pictures almost as good as this but nothing ever better yeah you know so man i was so into it for a long long time but you know after doing coral idea and fish idea and photographing every fish and every coral i came across and document them and making them into a free guide after a while it's like uh, i'm good <laughs> i'm good although like i'm really tempted to kind of get back more into it because I have a really great top-down viewer box with some built-in LEDs, blue and white. So if I shadow a coral, I'm actually re-illuminating it with the built-in lights that I put together with help from Michael Vargas. Um, but uh, lately I've been wanting to photograph my branching echinopora. I'll tell you what, man, that thing looks best with the lights off. <laughs> With the lights off, it looks like devil horns growing out of the rock because they're just so irregular and they're like, you know, gray and kind of darker at the base. And they, 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 you know, they, it's like, like a light, uh, eggshell at the tips, you know, it's not white, yeah. but it's kind of a yellowish color. They just look demonic in a really, really cool way. But then when the lights come on, then they're like bluish or grayish and they just don't look as cool. They look really great in just like ambient lighting when all the, the lights are off, like in the morning. Yeah, usually in the morning when there's sunlight coming in, but before the, the lights actually come on. But uh, yeah, I need to get a little bit more into that. I need, I need to give myself a, like a killer, killer macro. Yeah, that's what I'm missing. I have a, I have a pretty decent mirrorless setup. Um, actually, uh, you can't see it. It's like right there, but, um, but yeah, it just doesn't get enough use. Uh, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed getting great fish sh shots, especially when you can really zoom in and see like the scales and everything. Um, oh, when you can see detail on the scale. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's next level. Angelfish are really good for that. Yeah. And Not if you so use a remote flash instead of like your aquarium lights and kind of light them from the front without it bouncing off the glass, man, you can get some awesome fish shots. Yeah. No, there's still something to be said. I just wish 98% of reef aquarium photography to these days wasn't just a smartphone with an orange lens under blue light. 
I feel like you lose so much of the details, the colors get saturated, you know, because most of our corals are not a single shade. You know, like say if you have a solid orange acanthastria, it's going to be a deeper orange in the center of the colony with a gradient to a lighter orange near the growing edge, maybe a very thin green line where it's just started growing. And if you, you know, do the latter approach with just the orange lens and your you know, smartphone under blue lights, it's just going to blow out. It's going to be, the, the, you know, one fluorescent orange ball basically it's funny how that was a huge concern for aquarists uh 20 years ago when we were all fiddling with nikon coolpix cameras yes everyone was like so upset that if you took a picture of a hepatis you know a regal tang under um any type of light fixture where you had actinics the fish would come out purple and that pissed yep. off so many people And now you go on social media and every picture is just Windexed and yellow tangs look beige and and everybody's cool with it. Color. Everybody's like, yeah, whatever. Like, you know what I meant. That, you, you know what, what my intent was and we all know that. That purple color yeah. was partially part of Nikon's color science. It was the sensor, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it was the sensor like that's just right beyond my range of knowledge. Okay. But I could, back in the day, I could point out when a picture was taken with a Nikon. Yeah. Because those blues would turn out a little bit more purple. Yep. It was kind of, you could, you'd definitely see it. Yeah. And there's a lot of old pictures of like purple blue tangs out in the world. Yeah. I just, I think it's funny that now if something it doesn't, well, one, we're Photoshopping corals and making them look crazier than they actually are. But then the people, like when they don't do that, everybody's cool with it just looking all drowned out. Um, mm -hmm. it's, they're, the, I almost feel like <laughs> photography was better a while ago. You know, I think mm -hmm. uh, the quality. Although, I mean, shout out to Tan at Tidal Gardens. He did a coral feeding video recently. Tan has the best coral oh representation God. in the hobby. Yeah. He captures the colors. He'll show you the corals in 10K, 15K, 15,000 Kelvin spectrum. Untouchable, man. That, is, that guy is another level. Yeah, he did time lapse of like feeding corals. Uh, I think he released a video today or yesterday, and it just blew my mind. I was having so much fun watching these corals eat, you know? So, as, a, kind of as an aside, I've been concerned less with corals taking in the food than looking at what the coral or anemone poops. And he covers right? that. I have... Did you watch the video? Oh, I didn't watch the end. He's, I watched he, the beginning. Oh, yeah. He gets into, you know, different species of corals and are they actually ingesting it or are they, you know, sloughing it off, you know, or or trying to get rid of it, like you said. And, and it made me think of our conversation when I was in Golden with you in person where you had a theory about larger... Uh, size foods getting rejected more, right? Well, maybe they're not getting rejected, right? Maybe they're just like, you know, sucking on the outside and at some point they got to kick it out. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I think that's the next level of like, what does the poop of the animal look like? And I know that's hard to really nailed down but i have a lot of bare bottom tanks and a lot of different corals and i know what i feed and i'll tell you what you know the finer the food the just the better it is for the coral and but to honestly man to this day i've i'm still i've not found a food that corals take as readily as cyclopes 
I remember I have pictures buried deep in generations of old hard drives of Anacropora, like holding on to and ingesting <laughs> um, Copapod. And just you think to yourself, like, no way, that's not even possible. But I had the picture and I was like, holy crap, the Anacropora polyp, the old gray strain that Ori sold back in the day. Um, yeah, they would capture it. And so I feel like. I didn't I didn't watch the whole video. I definitely, you know, skipped ahead and skipped ahead and watched a couple of things. But the, you know, the imagery was really great, but I think there's more conversation to be had not just as the coral ingest it, but what is coming out of the coral. Cuz I'll tell you what, even when I feed small pellets, just, you know, fish food side pellets to my 18-inch uh, blue carpet anemone, a day or two later, there's little pellets sitting around the 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 bottom with a, you know, like like nice layer of basically of rot, you know, like that white rot. You know, so maybe it sucks some juices off. Maybe you can digest a little layer off the, the top of it. Um, the, the, the one exception, though, is my Coronactus ball tentacle anemones. They will strip a fish down to its bones. Really? Oh, yeah. They are actually, dude, I, again, I went down a little rabbit hole to l really learn more about them. If you ever want to learn about something just beyond superficial, go to scholar.google.com, find a couple articles, just read the introduction the figures which is what they call pictures and then the conclusion right? yeah. you don't have to read the whole thing and digest it like a scientist but they are specialists at eating starfish how crazy is that they're like one of the main predators of crown of thorn starfish nice and they're incredibly sticky so it's a shroom that specialized and adapted to eating very bony starfish yeah you know anytime a fish is not looking great we just go send it to see the doctor ball tentacle anemone <laughs> then a couple days later just a little pile of bones sitting next to it that's awesome it's like your uh it's like your disposal unit for any fish that pass away no it's the doctor it kills to see the doctor uh -huh. and everything's good the doctor can work <laughs> in <laughs> well no it's just there's something about if you have a, you know, I guess, you know, some of the freshwater aquarists will, will feel me on this. It's if you have a fish that's ailing, but it's not necessarily sick, and you use it to feed a bigger fish, it doesn't feel like as much of a waste. Mm. You know what I mean? So I've worked at some aquarium stores where we definitely had a doctor fish in the back. <laughs> <laughs> um, but all right, see if you can follow me on this. This is this is going to be a really long thread, but this I think really well, are highlights. You, are you done with the photography piece? Unless you have more to say. No, I was going to not get too heavy into it, but a, a, a somewhat related one would be uh, um, uh, microscopy or microscopes, right? Microscopy. Microscopy. Um, they've gotten so cheap, like for decent ones. Mm. You can get ones that you can mount your iPhone on. And, man, you mentioned the word rabbit hole. Like, go with your little pipette and take some water out of your substrate or, like, a patch of live rock and put that on a um, on a slide and just have fun. I mean, it's I have crazy one. what you can discover underneath. I have one. I bought a digital microscope with screen and lights for less than $100. Yeah. And I want to get a better one in the future, but I'd like to find someone who knows a little bit more about them so I can get, you know, not like top of the line $500, but I think I could get a lot of bang for my buck for like $300. But this $60, $70 one with the screen, man, it's got a seven inch screen and it'll record photos and videos. It's not awesome. It's not awesome. But I can see the tiny things I'm looking at. Yeah. 
those are really, really cool. And they've been instructive a little bit on when I was having kind of like that euphilia problems when we were doing reef therapy last year, where I started treating the tank with chemicleans and some other antibiotics. I could see the little spinny things, but not beyond that. But it was incredible because you know, seven screen, seven inch screen built right in. You know, it does feel a little slightly archaic that I got to pull out the micro SD card and go pop that into something else for export. But, you know, that's firmly a first world problem there. But, yeah, no, that's a great point. If you want to really rope in your kids and teach them about science, digital microscopes um, on Amazon are huge. Oh, yeah. You can start out for like 50 bucks and get up to whatever you want for different features yeah, yeah i did no, that with my really kids cool. and we we not only did we pull stuff out of the aquarium but then we ordered slides that were pre-prepared you know you can order like examples of different things and man they had a blast you know so and i know the not to go back to dinos i know the dino guys are becoming microscope experts because Again, the treatment is based on the type of dinos you have, so they're all using microscopes that to ID them. That crystallizes our point, though. Yeah. The multidisciplinary, like once upon a time, if you were a scientist, you were either a biologist, a geologist, an astronomer, or what have you, right? But when I went to school for marine science, you had to be like a jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. You had to know statistics and, you know, something about computers and oceanography and good at math. You had to tie in all these disciplines. And that's exactly what we're talking about. And so, like, the microscopy you brought up, I'm like, I hear in a little while the most progressive uh, aquarists who really want to learn something if, and, and, and coral farms. Every single one of them should have one of these digital scopes. Mm -hmm. Like use corals are too valuable not to investigate issues when they arise. You can't just, the answer cannot always be just frag it down. Yeah. That can't always be the answer, right? Because we're missing so much and saving so little. And so I'm really glad you brought up that point because yeah, if an army of us all just have a, uh, mesoscope or digital microscope as part of our aquarium toolbox, you know, we're going to start to be able to identify um, different species of dinoflagellates. And Matt, could you imagine the average reefer knowing different types of dinoflagellates like in a decade from now? Because everybody's got a digital microscope. They go on the dino help group and they're like, oh, well, what kind of dino do you have? And they'll be like, oh, yeah, I just popped another scope and it looks mostly like this species. Oh, okay, well, this is the treatment you need. <laughs> it's, it's, it's exactly where they're at, right? They're like, oh, nope, you got the other species. UV is not going to help you. You just save that guy how much money? You know, I mean, you can probably go buy a cheap Amazon UV, but I mean, let's just assume they're going to go out and buy like a Aqua UV or an Emperor Aquatics or something. Like, you just save the guy 400 bucks potentially. Because he could have plugged that in and been like, nah, nothing's happening. You know, it's like, ah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, this sounds a little bit far-fetched to some of the listeners who might be a little bit more casual of thinking about getting a digital scope. Setting up a digital scope and popping something under there is easier than calibrating one probe on your aquarium controller. Like, just incredibly easy. You know, plug it in, hit a button, saves a picture for you. The only thing that's not... 
yet is uh, smart or Wi-Fi enabled. I'm, maybe, I'm sure there's some models out there, but yeah, one that I could take a picture with that would just beam right to my phone for sharing and processing and, and, and using. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. Yeah, I have one, you know, I have two mesoscopes, um, a bunch of different, um, God, what is that, portals? and magnifying glasses for, for my aquariums. And once in a while, man, they're really, really instructive. You know, it might sit dusty on the shelf for two or three months, but I think it was maybe two months ago, I found two sea spiders in my tanks. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, one was in one tank and one was another tank. I was like, what the hell? What was weird is that one of them that we found was shortly after we had dosed interceptor, which I know has been a treatment for them. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Dude, it is one of the goofiest, goofiest creatures ever. The way it moves its legs and it's just like walking all super awkwardly. Oh, goodness. I'm really glad you brought up microscopy because I feel like that ties it back into some of the problems with the dinoflagellates. Yeah. Sorry. I, I You were about to go on a on a... I think a more creative one, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I figure it's... One thing that is not even part of our reef aquarium conversation is fungi. Yeah. Right? But um, it was Steve Garrett at the Acropolis. He told me, he was the first guy who ever turned me on to feeding yeast. Just simply drop the yeast in your water. It does have, you know, phosphates, so you're adding phosphates in your tank. But when you dose it for a while... Not even that long, you know, I'm going to say a few days or a week or two. Um, you can turn over like certain coral bases and see this little white film that has every indication of being kind of fungusy and stringy. And so, you know, as far as like uh, tangents and just really sideways hobbies, you know, I'm big into freshwater plants and I wanted to have the, I used to grow cannabis strictly for medical purposes because i live in colorado uh -huh. <laughs> um it's legal it right is. but i learned a lot about mycorrhizae mycorrhizae basically form the rootlets of all plants and if you want to learn about the best mycorrhizae to add for any planted application um you go to the bonsai guys right so if the pond guys have the lock on just high performance, really reliable equipment to protect their tens of thousands of dollars of fish, uh, the bonsai guys, they know the most about soil. Like they are freaking obsessive. I have watched multiple like hour plus long seminars of people just drilling down into bonsai soil and mycorrhizae, right? Because they're miniature trees that have the smallest possible root base, root mass, and they have to maximize what is going into their trees and, and similar plants. And so they're really diehard about their mycorrhizae. So I have a package of mycorrhizae that I use on my freshwater tank and I use it on my mangroves. When I put out the refugite, gave a little sprinkling of the mycorrhizae and I understand that I don't, I don't have to like, like the mycorrhizae will spread and there's something about mycorrhizae that just will thrive in freshwater. I don't know about saltwater, but I just, I did it anyway. Why not? Right? But it brings it back to dosing the yeast that Steve Garrett taught me. And there's, that's a whole unexplored avenue of reef aquarium keeping. Like we don't, we don't know this, right? But dendronephthias, 
a lot of them have root-like structures that they use to anchor themselves into soft sediments. Some of them firmly grow on rocks. But what if there's the missing component is some mycorrhizae-like fungi that you know gives them a little bit more support? I don't think it's true, but it should be you know investigated, right? Fungus are huge; they're an important part of life. And I'm not saying that anyone needs to go add mycorrhizae to anything. You know, I don't. There's no such thing as saltwater mycorrhizae, but I thought it wouldn't really hurt yeah. to add it to my mangroves and. I'm looking at my mangrove trees from here and I want to start over, right? How many times have you seen somebody have a mangrove like this big for years? My mangroves went from this to full on baby trees in one year. And now I kind of want to restart, especially realizing how much more important missing is than I ever realized and seeing how fast they can actually grow. I, do, I don't want to get rid of these mangroves, but I'm thinking, okay, I could take these mangroves out, set up a, a more permanent pond display here in the studio, just grow the heck out of some trees, and then restart some mangroves where I currently have my trees, and then use the art of bonsai to get them really nice and tight and bushy. Right, we're yeah, we're we're off the deep end now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it. We're talking about reef tanks and bonsai, and mangrove trees and, and fungus. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm I'm, dude, I'm not soliciting comments. You know, we're here to share a conversation with you, but this is a good moment to, if you have a specialty or or, or hobby that's has some intersection with aquarium keeping or aquatics or aquaculture, hydroponics or reef keeping, yo, let us know right now in the comments. I sincerely want to know and learn anything that can give me a leg up on my aquariums. Yeah. Even if they don't improve anything, but like other than my understanding, dude, that's, that's enriching. That's, that's really cool. So I'm sure there's some people listening that are into bonsais right now, freshwater fish, ponds, growing some of that reefer. I know there's some of you guys out there. Yo, one tip, another thing that's taboo to talk about maybe is like horticulture, but I learned some interesting tricks um, when it comes to growing the ganj. And one of those is to dose up to a point where you start seeing leaf burn and then you flush you know because you know the plant has had enough and i'm not saying I, I apply that approach to my uh to my corals but i know that i i, I know in my bones i know i don't need a hidden number when it comes to trace elements and nutrients if I'm dosing so much phosphate and nitrate and certain suite of trace elements, even if my number is zero, that's fine because I know I put it in the tank. So yeah. if it's zero, that means it went into the corals or into the, you know, the animals there. Right. And uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of hobbies. Can you think of some other hobbies that besides maybe, you know, vintage aquarium book collecting <laughs> that might be, uh, you know, informative? No, I mean, you you got into gardening in general uh, there as well, right? I mean, bonsai um, cloning. Yeah, a, a lot of it is um, it's kind of wrapped up in in I think being a gardener, right? Whether it's house plants, whether it's a yard, whether you're obsessed with having like a golf course lawn. Uh, like there's guys in my neighborhood that you know they have real mowers instead of rotary mowers, and they sand their yard and they like cut their grass till it's like a centimeter tall it's like a putting i know ring. a guy like that and ain't my cup of tea but i can totally because it i think all of these things 
appeal to our the same senses or whatever you want to call it that as a reef keeper i can look at that and be like i can appreciate your obsession man i can appreciate you know when you when you let's say just have a guest over who's a gardener and you start explaining to them how you propagate the corals they totally get yes it's like you're talking this similar language again you're like oh wait i yeah i know exactly what you're talking about you know um, and I dose this and I dose that and I make sure the environment is this. And then we clone them, we frag them, we propagate them, this and that. Yep. You know, like those guys can talk to you about Like I asked one of those guys about a sprinkler schedule, right? Cause I got a sprinkler system and it's super hot here, dude. I got like a science education in hydrating lawns that, uh, I think most people would go in and be like, oh boy, I just opened a can of worms. How do I get out of this? But as a science nerd, I was digging every minute of him explaining everything about, you know, and then, okay, as the seasons begin to change and the weather starts to cool off, here's what you want to do. And I was like, yeah. Um, You're like, yeah, I'm not going to do any no. of this, but keep, but keep talking. I know. I'm like, <laughs> let me get a beer. I'm not going to do any of it. No. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he started talking about, you know, watering the same amount it's like watering for two hours on one day or one hour two days a week right and just how one and he's like well if you live in arizona you want to water more frequently and and spread it out but we live in a humid environment and we want to make sure everything dries out or else you get fungus on your lawn right uh because it just stays too damp and anyway not that i'm sure i'm sure i'm getting that wrong because i'm not a lawn person but same thing we 20 years ago there was a tank tour around that I went to and we ended up at this guy's house and he had a softy tank but in his backyard on his deck he had a crap ton of bonsai trees and I was like I'm out I'm going out there you know yeah I've seen all this stuff before let me go see some new stuff dude a half hour probably was more it was so long ago but I was he and I were just talking about bonsai trees I know nothing about keeping a bonsai tree right but I was so fascinated about this different obsession that he had and all the people inside were like what the hell man we're here for your reef tank you're out there uh, so i yeah i can relate i get it um along the, the same lines of the bonsai people and the um weed growers like i understand a little bit more of the philosophy between behind like trimming a branch and how that stimulates more branching mm -hmm. this is really well documented when it comes to plants right because they have nodes and they have internodes and i want to learn a little bit more about bonsaiing my saltwater mangrove trees but i wonder how much of that might really apply to our corals you know there is something there when you keep trimming a coral it just sends up more like an acro it sends up more axial tips you know, and we just haven't even begun to scratch the surface because people are just really just preoccupied with, you know, selling little tiny frags for a ton of money and getting as many, you know, tiny little pieces as possible. But I, I'd like to learn and see if I can, um, you know, transpose some of the, if it applies, you know, what happens to a tree or bonsai or wheat plant when you trim it or you fim it, over, you know, versus an acro that's really arborescent? Do, do some of the same rules apply, right? There's just not enough of a body of knowledge, but we can at least inform ourselves and have a starting point by learning from other disciplines. I'd love this conversation, bro. I love it. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. And I think if you're the type of person that obsesses over your reef tank 
you will be a good plant grower. You will be a good gardener, right? I mean, we've all met the person that's like, ah, you know, I bought a house plant once and it just died, you know? And the, the reef obvious would be like, why? What, you know, what, what was I doing wrong? How do I do it better the next time? You know, what's, what, what does it mean if the tips of, of my plants are, are dying, right? What does that mean? Um, you see, and then all that, that in quest for knowledge and figuring out and solving the problem in, inadvertently makes you a great hobbyist in a, yet another hobby, right? Um, so I, I think uh, the other one that I, is probably a weird one and maybe more personal is um, fishing. And it sounds weird because we like to keep them in boxes and care for them and they're our pets. But uh, it's something about if you've kept fish in aquariums, freshwater, saltwater your whole life, you speak a little bit of fish, you know, you mm-hmm. understand. And you can look at a creek or a river and be like, that's where I'm going to put my lure, right? Like, you just you know, know where fish are going to hang I know, out. I know I've told you this before, but uh, <clears throat> I haven't been fishing that many times. I love I love watching other people fish. Like, I don't need to cast a rod myself. But um, Dave Faison of Nanobox Reef he came out a handful of years ago, and we went and fished, uh, uh, fly fished this really cool pond. And then when we were coming back, I was like, you know what? There's this really cool, you know, river, like, you know, goes through my town. I think I know a couple spots. And without just any recon i was looking at the river i'm like yeah go hit over there dude we hit so many rainbow <laughs> trouts it wasn't even funny right and i'm not i don't i'm not versed in fishing but just having the uh, marine science background and aquarium background i'm like i'm pretty sure the fish are hiding right there sure enough man every, almost every cast there was a you know a good uh, colorful male to be brought up yeah and it, you know like lures are meant to mimic insects, arthropods, you know, they're meant to mimic um, aquatic creatures, right? And it's like a guy that's stared at an aquarium a whole lot knows how to move like a grub through the water and make it look lifelike, right? Like, because we, mm-hmm. we've seen, you know, polychaetes like swimming around, you know, like not, not bristle worms, but you know the kind I'm talking about that like go out into you the water. You would just know it instinctively without being able to describe it. Yeah. But along those same lines, seeing how far into the weeds the reef aquarium hobby can go, the same thing applies, right? Yeah. I can it, like immunize myself against, you know, if I really ever got into fly fishing, I'm like, I think I could do okay with like three or four different kinds of flies. I don't think I need a whole giant library catalog because someone said this one is for this fish at this place at this time of year. You know, you see people just going down into the weeds and when you've gone into the weeds in one hobby and then pulled back to more fundamentals, you realize, you know, you're going to get 90% of the uh, success with 10% of the effort, you know, the extra 90% that you keep pushing and pushing to optimize, like a lot of folks do with reef tanks, you know, this is kind of like the reverse conversation, how the reef hobby trains you for other hobbies. And like, okay, I don't need to go that deep. Yeah. I don't need to go that deep. That's true too. Yeah. You can, it's, it's an excuse to buy a lot of cool gadgets. (laughs) Gadgets are fun. Yeah. I love every single one of them. Almost every single one of them. Although I will say, I don't know, I'm pretty superstitious about lures where, you know, it's like, oh, no, I just got to change color. And then, like, suddenly I start catching the fish and I'm like, it's because I changed the color, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, 
the black woolly bugger worked yesterday, but today I had to go with a moss green one, you know? And there you <laughs> just, go. It's probably just luck of the draw that, you know, the fish was like, yeah, all right. But yeah, you know, and if you happen to be a plumber or woodworker or just handy with tools and things, you know, that can also enrich your reef building experience. You know, it's it's nice to, to have a friend that you know can slap together a great stand or, you know, a custom sump. Um, but yeah, I'll just say it again. Um, I, can you think of any other hobbies that can really inform the reef aquarium hobby itself? No, I mean, you mentioned woodworking and another one that popped in my brain is I'm fascinated observing from a distance what the reef pie folks are doing where they're using a raspberry pie and they're essentially building out their own controller from it, right? And they're, and, and, you know, obviously that is not necessary to keep a reef tank, but it's guys that have backgrounds in probably development and coding that are having an enjoyment, you know, writing code and automating things. And, you know, some of that's probably also some electrical engineering but they're using those skills to build a system, a life support system for organisms that they're passionate about. I think that's super cool. You know, like, yes, you can yeah. go buy a controller off the shelf, right? But that's not the point. Like, the point for them is that journey, so. Yeah, you know, right now, um, our automatic alkalinity testing machines are nothing more than robots that kind of repeat what we do in an automated fashion. And I'm, I'm, I know in my bones that there's an alkalinity probe possible. It'll take a lot of R&D, but then once you figure out kind of the trick, you know, next thing you know, it's in the hobby, you know, side of things, right? So re people from like the reef pie side, um, they might be the ones to really uh, put forward um, these some certain breakthroughs, right? Because they're going to be a little bit more nimble and not necessarily financially motivated. Right. They might find a patent out there and be like, ooh, this might be kind of cool to make for myself. Let me see if I can do this, you know? So I, I imagine that Neptune Systems, you know, sprang out of kind of a hobby project or something akin to it that started really basic and rudimentary that, you know, blossomed into the amazing ecosystem of controller devices and accessories we have now. There was a guy on Reddit that had a house plant and um, the users would vote on whether the plant needed water. Uh -huh. And so once enough votes were hit, you know, this automated thing would water the plant. And whenever I see the reef pie stuff, you know, if I had all the time in the world and all the money in the world, I mean, I guess it wouldn't require a lot of money. I always think it would be awesome to set up maybe like a 20-gallon tank uh, and have an automated water exchange, have dosers, have everything built into it. And then, you know, a webcam and just to have like this crowdsourced management of a reef tank where everybody kind of votes. Like not one pissed off kid in a basement is not going to nuke the tank, right? It has to be right. a consensus of like... The wisdom of the crowd. Yeah. yeah, especially as automated testing starts to become more mature where they would have all the metrics of what the pH and what the alkalinity and stuff is. Uh, I don't know. It's probably I'm, it's probably not as cool as I think it, it would be. But I, I, when I saw that Reddit guy with his plant, I thought that'd be kind of fun to do. The Trident was a hobby project. Yeah. The Trident started out with a machine created by Jim Welch. I'm pretty sure that I'm remembering his name correctly. And then Neptune Systems just bought the rights to it. And then they developed it to commercial product. And so I do see you know, more of the breakthroughs actually coming from the tinkerers. 
from the re-therapy listeners, you know, people who have some, some side hobbies that have overlap with the reef aquarium hobby, and either they'll start their own company or they'll team up with an established brand to bring some of these things to market. Man, we, we uh, definitely approached a session of reef therapy without a clue what we were going to talk about. It was literally in the, uh, the pre-gaming. They were like, hey, let's talk about hobbies related to the reef aquarium hobby. And uh, yeah, this is my kind of one of my favorite aspects of reef keeping is how much parallels there are with other things. Yeah, yeah. and I would like to hear in the comments. Um, we, we really want to hear it this time. Yeah, like what are some what are some things that you guys do in terms of hobbies or you know side gigs or whatever that uh, you enjoy that you feel enhances or helps your hobby or your you know your passion in reef keeping? Because um, I know there's got to be more, right? There's got to be so many more that we're just not thinking of. Well, we, we just kind of pointed out the obvious ones, but you know, I have uh, a average level of labrix experience, which helps me to test my water a right. little bit more diligently. And I think there'll be some some other folks who just have maybe are great plumbers or know a little bit more about fluid dynamics that uh, you know apply that to their tanks. Or man, there's got to be so many great ideas out there that just haven't reached out maybe maybe we could do a crowdsource reef therapy episode where people tell us what to talk about <laughs> that would be pretty fun but um yeah no this is a this is a fun session um I think this would be really informative for you guys to tell us your other uh passions that help you um get a better understanding of the reef aquarium hobby or apply, you know, the fundamentals of reef keeping. So we're, we're sincerely interested to hear what you guys have to say in the comments on the YouTube channel. If you're listening to this to, uh, via podcast, uh, make sure, make sure to rate us and then give us a uh, 1000 stars. Um, I think we're, we're writing about 4.9 right now. Nice. I, I look, I, I didn't even look, I, I don't I think I stumbled across it and I was just like, Oh, reef therapy, 4.9 rating, like 200 ratings. I'm like, Oh, that's pretty good. So, but no, we don't do this for the ratings. We do this selfishly for our own reef therapy um you know i had my own challenges today and i feel a lot better after talking <laughs> it out with mark yeah i feel better about my dino invasion round two send me an invite to that dino group because again even if i'm not having <clears throat> problems that be I, I think i'd be fascinated i think it'd be a very instructive uh group to follow i lately i don't know what it is i think the summertime people are getting rid of tanks like ad infinitum and if there's like 10 or 12 groups in a local area the same person will post like eight times so i put all my freshwater and saltwater groups on pause on snooze for 30 days i'm like i can't because oh, it's, it's all just, for sale for sale all for yeah. sale for sale for sale and somebody wants 175 dollars for very used um you know original uh kessel little cannon lights what is that thing called i don't even remember the what it's called a150 anymore. or that one yes yeah. the, the a150 a160 um i need one of those in my collection actually now that they're, they're getting a little bit more vintage i have two one of them fell into the tank and was still lighting their corals submerged <laughs> oh wow um, oh wow but it finally started to act up so it's now it's, you know what it might be the power supply Sometimes uh, that is usually the power supply gives up before the light. Yeah, well, that, and again, not to like plug them, but I was like that, that made me respect the product. I'm like, all right, that thing is a submerged light right now and it's working. <laughs> you didn't hear this from me, but I believe that they created a version that was 
mounted to a deep sea submersible. Oh, wow. Like potted everything, encased in resin. I don't know the details. This is a conversation long, long time ago. But thanks for another session of Reef Therapy, Mark. Yes. It's good to go back to back. You know, because we just did this on Sunday for like a makeup session when you were just on the tail end of Corona. Yes. I'm, I'm glad you're feeling better and everybody out there definitely stay safe and uh, we'll catch you on another session very soon. Sounds good. Bye, everyone.